This month, we are discussing the connection between generosity and parenting. You see the definition for generosity on the screen. Quite obviously, it costs a lot to raise a child. Latest reports I've read tell us that it, raised, it costs about $230,000 or more to get a child to age 18. And that's not counting college costs. And obviously, it costs a whole lot more emotionally or relationally if we're going to raise them in the nurture and the admonition of the Lord. So we have to be willing to, to count the cost. Some of you here tonight may be in despair. You say, frankly, I don't have enough time to get all of this done to be the right kind of a parent. And maybe you can relate to the humorous note someone has said, you know, about the time your face clears up, the mind starts to go. <laughs> and life does go quickly. Parenting takes patience. Parenting is not soon. Parenting is not certain. Got a quote for you. I, I love the imagery of this writer, Hal Borland, when he says, knowing trees, I understand the meaning of patience. Knowing grass, I can appreciate persistence. And then he adds, people like plants need patient nurturing. What parents plant may take a generation to harvest. So take heart, take the long view. Just a word about my wife and myself and our family. We'll show you a picture here. We have four adult children, two girls, two boys. The girls sandwich the four of them. Our oldest is a part of our church. Jennifer is seated back here. We love them dearly. We are blessed with nine grandchildren so far. Here was a picture a little more than a year ago of us celebrating together down in Charlotte, North Carolina. This is my family unit, so I pray for all 19 of these people every day by name. And the person I pray for the most is me, because I'm the only one that I can control. The only one that I can pray for change in really is, is in me. And I, I really want to finish well as I near the end of my course. I, I've told my wife the words, seriously, I'd like to have etched into my grave marker. This is what I'd like to have on there. He loved Christ, he loved his family, and he loved the family of God. I don't want to be a hypocrite. When I'm laid to rest, I want that to be true. Last week, Pastor Brad talked about the little guys, what we might call the ankle biters, ages zero to five. They obviously need security. They need assurances of love from dad and mom. They need to know that grandpa and grandma, or as they say in Germany, uh, Oma and Opa, love them. But they also need to know that they ought to obey authority, especially parental authority, because if we don't subdue them when they're little, God will have to subdue them when they get big, and that hurts a whole lot more. And that subduing of self-will is crucial in ages zero to five, as I try to set the stage for what I'm talking about tonight. I believe zero to five is prime time for spanking. Kind of an old-fashioned word, but very biblical. The book of Proverbs calls it the rod. I taught on this before. I believe there are three times when you ought to spank, three occurrences, three major offenses, Deliberate disobedience, 
lying, or disrespect. And I believe that your children ought to know the consequences of their misbehavior prior to your spanking. There ought to be no surprises. And they should be brought to quiet submission after you're finished spanking them. Now, as we move on in age, I believe personally that this kind of physical discipline should be used less frequently as they progress through grade school. Tonight, Pastor Jason has asked me, he's given me the responsibility of addressing the parenting of school-aged children, that is, those who are aged 6 through 12. How many of you have children or grandchildren aged 6 through 12? Can I see your hands? So this message relates to most everybody in this room. And yes, we grandparents are part of the solution. I really believe that. There's a lot of ways I could go on this talk, but I need to restrict myself. So I'm going to give my emphasis to the heart relationship between the parents and the children. Heart relationship, that's the key concept. We begin with Scripture from the last book in the Old Testament, the Italian prophet Malachi. Malachi chapter 4, verses 4 to 6. These are the words of the Lord. This is how the Old Testament ends. Remember the law of my servant Moses, the statutes and rules that I commanded him at Horeb for all Israel. And then God, the Lord, makes a prediction. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet. He's talking about, figuratively, John the Baptist before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes, that is the coming of Messiah. And he, John, will turn, here's our key word, the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children toward their fathers. The obvious inference here is the results of the new birth turn the hearts of the daddies to their kids and the kids toward their daddies. If that doesn't happen, he goes on, lest I come and strike the land with the decree of utter destruction, or as the old authorized version says, strike the earth with a curse. That's the way the Old Testament ends. Not exactly a happy Disney-like ending to the Old Testament. But not to fret, because after the 400 silent years, the intertestamental period, the New Testament picks up this exact same phraseology to the very first words spoken in the New Testament by the messenger Gabriel, uh, uh, angel Gabriel. And this is what he says in Luke chapter 1. Look at the text with me. And he, Gabriel speaks of John the Baptist, will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God, and he, John, will go before him, a reference to Messiah, in the spirit and power of Elijah, Watch the phrase now, just like Malachi, to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. Okay, so what's the point that's being made in these two texts? Let me share this with you. A true disciple of Christ will inevitably become a true discipler of his children. That's what this is saying. A true disciple of Christ will inevitably become a true discipler of his children. The key word tonight is the word heart. And author Rob Reno talks about heart issues in four ways, and he starts with the parents. This is for your notes. You can write these down. Parents, instruction to you. Offer your heart to the Lord. 
Sincerely, the key to parenting is the parents. Starts with their hearts. Do it sincerely, genuinely. Turn, uh, number two, turn your heart to your child. We say, well, that, that's a no-brainer, Kurt. Of course we'll do that. Well, in our busy lives, we get distracted, and there's a distance that sometimes grows between us and our kids. Number three, draw your child's heart to yours. Tonight, I'm going to explain details on that. And then number four, point your child's heart to Christ. And then Rob adds these words, <clears throat> The shortest distance between your child's heart and Christ is you. Now, now here's the scary part. One childhood expert declares, Satan tries to break the heart connection between the child and the parent approximately between the fourth and the sixth grade. So who is Solomon targeting in the book of Proverbs? I think he's starting with young people in that age framework and then moving on to the teenage years, which I will be addressing next week. Now let me just show you the last verse of uh, Psalm 23, 24 to 26, where Proverbs addresses the need for the children to connect to the parents Verse 26, my son, give me your heart and let your eyes observe my ways. So here's my point for tonight. The heart connection is the key to influence. The heart connection is the key to influence. We're not talking about mere externalism or behavior modification. We're talking about really getting deeper into the heart. So this must be our goal in parenting to connect the child's heart to ours and eventually to Christ's. Perhaps our theme verse should be Proverbs 4.23, keep your heart with all vigilance, for from it flow the springs of life. Let me talk about the heart. The circulatory system in the human body surrounds the heart. It flows out of the human heart. Your human heart is the size of your fist. It weighs about a half a pound. Every day, an adult heart pumps blood through 75,000 miles of blood vessels. Now you know why you feel so tired. It pumps enough to fill a 4,000-gallon railroad tank car. No wonder it must be the most powerful muscle in the body. And no wonder it is used as an analogy or a figure for that spiritual organ the Bible calls the heart. What is the heart as defined by Scripture? It is the center of your being. It is the seat of your thoughts and your emotions and your will. Behavior is a revelation of what's going on inside the heart. What a person says or does mirrors the heart. It's why when I counsel addicts in our church, I tell them, listen to me, pay more attention to what you do than to what you say. It's easy to promise something, but your lifestyle declares what you really believe. 
How you live is what you really believe, not what you say. Hmm. Jesus put it this way in Luke 6.45, For out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. Now listen to me carefully. We're talking about those who are aged 6 through 12. The most important part of childhood training is teaching biblical character that develops the conscience and the heart. The conscience responds to the moral standard that it is taught. You must regularly, intentionally teach your children the word of God. It cannot be reactive. It must be proactive. You must inculcate it into the various aspects of life. You have to talk about God. You have to talk about Jesus. You have to talk about the Bible regularly in the normal course of life. Now, when I spoke during Sunday nights at Saterville about three years ago on the same theme, I, I recommended a book on character development. I'll recommend it again. In fact, I have it with me tonight, Character Matters, by Dr. Steve and Megan Scheibner. Uh, you can order this directly from the author, but you, as you can see there, it's available on ebook at Amazon and Barnes and Noble. Grade school is the time <clears throat> when spiritual development takes place in children. Most people make a profession of faith before the age of 12. Some of them are genuine, some not. But that's the time when most kids personalize their faith. It's also the time when they learn responsibility and discipline. It's also the time they discover their God-given talents, the way God has wired them, what Proverbs 22, 6 calls their bent. Train up a child in the way he should go, Charles Swindoll says, according to their bent, and when they are old, they will not depart from it. You have to understand the bent of your child. Children vary from one child to another. Now, some of you are wrestling big time with parenting, and you're saying, I'm, I'm struggling I don't know how to teach character in my busy life. I'm going to make a rather elementary statement to you, but I hope it'll go to your heart. We have to take God home with us. I'm convinced after 43 years of ministry that most people come to visit God for an hour on Sunday morning or perhaps another hour on Sunday night but they leave him in a box in the church house and go home absent God's presence in their lives every day. For your kids to follow Jesus, they've got to see Jesus at home. Take God home with you. I counseled a gal in our church this week who's having severe marriage problems. She's 30. And she said, you know, I grew up in a Christian home. What she said, after all my problems... I was made aware of the fact that my faith wasn't really real. And then she made a statement. I wrote it down. My parents never showed me how to have an actual relationship with God. After visiting with a lot of people, I think that's not the exception. I think that's the rule. I don't think dads and moms 
are talking about Jesus and showing him at home, I think they visit God in services on Sunday. I want to be helpful. I've I got a real passion here. <laughs> I hope it comes across. <clears throat> I sit in that office right over there, and I'm trying to be preventative, and that's why I'm preaching tonight, because I want to help you. I think we're losing the battle with our kids well before they graduate from high school. I think we're losing the battle in elementary school. With our own kids, we found that the family table, supper time, and bedtime were the keys. Two primary venues for talk about the Lord. Now, we weren't as faithful as I should have been in family devotions, but when they occurred, <clears throat> it was usually when we were all together at the family table, supper time, and we used the little resource we have in the the uh, narthex back there called Keys for Kids, and you can pick up one for your family too. I believe with a strong passion that every family should insist on eating one meal a day together. Did you hear me? One meal a day together. And I'm going to make a strong statement. If your schedule keeps you from doing that, then change your schedule. Do whatever it takes to change your schedule. You have to be a family at home. Karen and I, in all honesty, had to severely curtail our kids' involvement in sports, even though I'm a fanatic of sports and played them myself. We had to severely curtail them because they became so disruptive and intrusive to our family time. We still allowed them to do a lot of things, but we tried to make sure they were family and church friendly. And we prioritized vacations that kept us together. Things like tent cap camping. Nothing like sleeping in a tent together to bond, right? If you don't kill them first. I've got to share with you something my wife did that I just love. For about six years, my wife wrote what she called the family letter. I have the volume here of all of these letters before me. On an almost monthly basis, she recorded all the things our family did that month, and then she sent it to all of our relatives. This is before email. Obviously, it'd be a lot easier today. I haven't seen this for years, probably not since we moved here, honey. So I, I called her this week, and I said, do you still have that family letter book? And she found it for me, and I started to read it this week, and it, 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 re, it reduced me to tears because I was looking at life through the lens of my wife's words. And you know what stood out in this book was our love for each other and our love for the Lord. This is a family heirloom, and I love my wife for being that kind of a woman who sets the temperature in the home that wants to keep a record of what God's doing in our lives something you may want to consider. I, I believe that families today are just flat out too busy. And that's our own fault. The resolution of this problem lies squarely on the shoulders of the parents. It starts with the dads, but moms are responsible as the conscience in the home. <clears throat> we adults have to be the adults. We have to take the first step. We have to take a hard look at ourselves because our children are imitators. They replicate what they see in us. Our priorities become their priorities, whether good or bad. So we have to do a self-examination. So I'm just 
just going to ask you adults, you dads and moms and grandpas and grandmas tonight, right now in this moment, is there anything going on between you and Jesus? Really? Or you just overflow of what's going on between you and Jesus? Because we leak. Who we are is what they become. If we fake it, they see it a mile away. We have to also check on the heart condition of our kids regularly. And once a week, I want to urge you, once a week, I want to urge you. Um, did I skip that particular one there? Let me go back to that a second. That's on the screen. Because this is really important. Um, Deuteronomy 6 tells us how to inculcate truth at home. Pastor Brad talked about this last week. We talk about God's truth when they get up, when we drive around, when we sit together to eat, and when we tuck them in at night. Those are the times. And as I mentioned, the two times for us were really the family table and, and uh, bedtime. Now, back to what I was going to say a moment ago. <clears throat> Once a week, I urge you to get out with your, your family, your kids, and maybe at, at bedtime and, and ask them some heart questions. Um, they're they're kind of like at bedtime, they just kind of surface, you know, come to the surface, and they're kind of like worms after a rain or, or clams on a low tide. They just kind of open up, and here's the questions to ask them. Is everything okay in your heart? Did anyone hurt your feelings this week? Are you mad at anyone? Did anyone break a promise to you? Is there anything I can do for you? Then take time to listen. Really listen. Talk to them. They want to communicate. You say, what if the children misbehave? Then at this stage of life, you've got to do more communication. You've got to try to unpack what's going on. You say, how do I do that? <clears throat> well, here's some words from a classic on parenting called Shepherding a Child's Heart by Ted Tripp. Look at these words. Ted declares, <clears throat> behavior has a when, a what, and a why. The when describes the circumstances in which the behavior occurred. The what describes the things that were said or done. The why describes the internal heart issues that pushed or pulled the specific behavior. And we have to get down to the why. That means we can't just throw out threats or attempts to silence and shame. We actually have to sit down and talk with them, peel back the layers of excuses, and get to the real issue of the heart. And here's the question that I ask in my counseling office, and we need to ask at home, what did you have to have so badly that you were willing to sin to get it, appeal to their conscience, show them their need to honor Christ, tie in the gospel, and explain that only Jesus can meet the deepest needs of your heart. You say, Pastor Kirk, can I be honest with you? At home, it's not working well for us. I think it's broken. I think we might be in that grade four to six where I'm losing them. What do I do? Well, here's some practical help for you. It really starts with you as a parent being vulnerable and transparent and going to your kids. 
Here's the instruction for you. Number one, invite your son or daughter to be honest with you about their fears and anxieties and talking with you about spiritual things. In fact, ask them to grade you on a scale of 1 to 10. How comfortable are you in talking with me about spiritual things? Many of you will find out, they'll say, I'm not comfortable at all. It's, it's a 1 or it's a 2 or a 3, mom or dad. So number two, if you sense that they're distant and that you have offended them in some way, if God convicts you of your sin, then be willing to apologize to them because it's all about a heart relationship with your kids in this time framework. How do you do that? Clearly state what you did wrong, what you did not do, and declare that you were wrong. Ask them, will you forgive me? Yeah, you ask your kids. Oh, I have to swallow my, yeah, you have to swallow your pride. Give them time to respond. When they are willing to say yes to, will you forgive me, then ask a second question. Will you give your heart back to me? Because some of them have taken their heart away from you. And by the way, we husbands have to do the same thing when we offend our wives. Will you give your heart back to me? And then lastly, ask them to help you be obedient to God in a way that won't annoy them or drive them away. Example, can you give me three things that I can do for you that will keep me from annoying you? They'll probably have the answers to those. And finally, look for ways to regularly share your stories of repentance and spiritual growth. Tell them how God is working on you. When's the last time you told your fourth grader, fifth grader, sixth grader, this is what God's doing in my life. This is what I'm learning from the Word. Life is not static. It's dynamic. We have our ups. We have our downs. And we parents blow it, and they know it. Let's engage them in honesty about how we've blown it. Tell them your story. To summarize tonight, parenting takes time. It takes talk. It takes relationship. I learn a lot from my wife from my kids, uh, sometimes when my wife is trying to talk to me <clears throat> and I'm not listening very well, she will say to me, honey, will you listen to me with your eyes? I was listening to a talk show locally this past week and uh, a restaurateur was talking about her business and about how she is into presentation on foods. And she made this statement, I wrote it down. We eat with our eyes first. Hmm, that's good. Well, I'll connect the dots. We communicate with our eyes first. Look at your children, look at your mate, talk to them, look into the window of their soul and talk to them. We have to slow down and visit with our kids at a deeper level. We have to listen to them with our eyes. As I mentioned a moment ago, bedtime was always a favorite of mine with the kids. And Karen and I would take turns tucking in the girls and the boys. I probably spent more time with the boys in the bunk beds telling them farm stories of when I grew up in northwest Iowa. And, but it was a privilege for us to pray with them. It really was. Praying was a precious privilege. 
And we tried to be real with our kids. We still try to be real with our kids. We're friends with our kids. We talk with our kids. I believe that the ultimate cell group is the family. And what do we do in cell group? Well, the key words, life, change, together. And that's the family. I'm going to give a few moments to Pastor Paul so you can hear a different voice before we close up shop tonight. Uh, Pastor Paul, would you tell us the names and ages of your kids and a little bit about what you and Steph have done to develop a heart relationship with them and then maybe take a moment just to share any burden on your heart to the parents who are here. I'm sure you're like the rest of us and you'd say, you haven't arrived. But... uh, you're right in it. You're right in the fight right now. Yeah. Um, yeah, I feel like a proverbial chicken with my head cut off a lot of the time, you know, running around trying to do the right thing. And uh, uh, you asked me to come up and talk a little bit about parenting, and I thought I might as well get up and, you know, make the next uh, presentation of the next Apple product or something I know nothing about, you know, and just... Um, but God's good to us. We have, uh, we have five. My wife, Steph, and I have five kids. We have Chloe. She's 13. And uh, we have Isaiah, our second born, he's 11. And then Shiloh, who is our middle child, she's seven years old. And then we have two three-and-a-half-year-old twins, which makes sense you have two twins. Uh, three-and-a-half-year-old tw- twins, Joel and Naomi. Um, yeah, we, to, as far as making heart connections with them, there, there's just so much I thought of, um, even as you were talking and uh, things that came up in my mind. But I know one thing... Um, that Steph tries to do, which is really good, and she does it consistently, and she's awesome at this. Um, as every Sunday, she asks the kids at the dinner table, you were talking about having a meal together, at the dinner table, um, what's one thing you remember from the, the sermon that day, or your lesson, or your, you know, your Sunday school lesson? And they can go around and, uh, and uh, share what they learned from God's word that day or from their teacher. But uh, um, that, that's a good thing just to get them talking about spiritual things and have a, a, a deeper heart connection that way. Um, we have made the effort this year. Our kids are going to Grandview um, School, uh, Grandview Christian School this year. And so we've made an effort to try and, uh, and have dinner together. It doesn't always work out because of schedules and things, but it is a really good thing. I find that when we do it, um, it's, uh, it's good just to sit around and talk about our day and, um, and then we have, uh, I usually read a scripture at the end of dinner and just have a, a short devotional. And we should do that so much more. But again, I'm convicted when you say, you know, you need to change your, your schedule because there's so much that goes on with, with now sports and school and cell group and all these things pulling at us. And, um, but we need to make time. I agree with that. Um, one of the things that I try to do as far as that, the, some of the best conversations I've had as far as making a heart connection with my kids um, is usually, and I think first off of my middle child, Shiloh, she's, she's a, um, God's, uh, one of the biggest God-sanctifying tools in my life, and I'm sure Steph would say the same thing. Um, she's probably our hardest one right now. I think Steph's nodding her head vigorously back there. Um, so there's a lot of discipline that goes on with her, and uh, I get to... to pull her in when, when I need to discipline her, and I, I try to explain to her um, that what, about sin. It's not just that you, um, 
you've, you've done something wrong here, but what you've done is sin, and it's not just violated the rules of our family, but it's, it's, it's um, offended God. And I get to explain to her and over and over and over, <laughs> it seems, that um, sin always gets dealt with. Sin always gets dealt with. And we made that connection to the gospel that because sin always gets dealt with, it, it has to be dealt with. It can't be let go. Um, and so God in his love gave us Christ and, and put the punishment on him. Um, so that's one of the things as far as that heart connection. And, and I guess the other, another real big thing I was thinking of, Pastor Kurt, is, um, and this is, this is the hardest thing for me, um, just dying to self in your, in your daily life as far as that time spent with your kids. I'm someone that I love my alone time, you know. I want to I wanna sit and do something stupid on my phone or, you know, read a book or a magazine or something. And Steph would say the same thing. She likes to sit down at the dinner table and read a magazine or a book or something while, even while she eats. Um, but just dying to yourself and those things and, and just putting things in priority, like this phone is going to break and pass away and this, and this book isn't that important compared to the eternal soul of my, my child. And she even told me today, I think it happened this morning, uh, about the laundry, right? The, she was carrying a big basket of laundry and my, my son Isaiah, he loves hugs. And uh, so she's got this big armload full of laundry and he comes up and he goes, hug? It's like the most inopportune time to have a hug. And she said, oh, I, do you see I have laundry in my hand or something to that effect, you know? And she said later that um, I just should have put the laundry down and made the time. And because how many how many years is that going to happen, you know, with your son to, to come up and want a hug or 11-year-old wanting a hug at all? But um, as far as, I, I guess, as far as one thing um, I would be burdened to, to say, um, I guess, is just a couple things that have convicted me that I've heard from speakers and books and things in the past. And one of them just has to do with Ephesians chapter 5, where we're told to redeem the time because the days are evil or, or making the most of every opportunity, some, some translations say. Um, if you break down uh, the weeks, um, there's 940 Saturdays from ages 0 to 18. Um, Saturdays being that day when most of us maybe have the chance to do something and you know, die to ourselves, do something with our kids. Uh, we have a limited time, and we have to make the most of every opportunity and not, uh, not push those opportunities away. Um, and then, and this was probably the biggest thing I've heard. I was at a, a conference um, with the pastors in Indianapolis. We were at a, um, a Paul Tripp had a, uh, a great writer. He had, he had a, a workshop we were doing. He said something that just really arrested me and a bunch of the guys on staff too. Um, he said, your, your children do not exist to refre- reflect well on you. They exist to reflect glory to God. And at least what I believe practically a lot and practically and how I live things out, I think practically I believe a lot that my children exist to know their place and to reflect well on me. And the consequences of that are if it doesn't happen, uh, if it does happen and they, they reflect well on me, I, I'm proud. Your kids are so good. Thanks, buddy. You know. But if they don't do well, it makes me angry because they've reflected poorly on me. But if I change my point of view and I say, that's not why my kids exist. They don't exist to, to reflect well on me as their father. They, refl- they, they exist. Ephesians chapter uh, 1 says uh, they exist to know Christ and to be to the praise of his glory. That's why they exist. 
So that, that saves me when I adjust my perspective. That saves me from a whole lot of anger and a whole lot of pride, and it helps me to give them so much more grace and forgiveness in their learning process and the bumps and bruises that they go through. Lord, help us. In Jesus' name, amen. Your kids are waiting for you. Thanks for being here tonight. You're dismissed. <laughs>